we are going to dive headfirst into the murky waters of digital advertising, grappling with the three-headed hydra of compliance, the really deceptive allure of made-for-advertising sites, and the labyrinthine complexities of programmatic pitfalls. Get ready to know more than you did yesterday. Welcome aboard the Adotat Show, where marketing, media, and ad tech converge. Fasten your seatbelts as your host, Pesat Latin steers you through the digital world of advertising trends and marketing innovations. All right, folks, hold on to your privacy settings because we're about to dive headfirst into the glittering pool of ad tech issues. And spoiler alert, it's a belly flop competition. Issue numero uno, the regulatory nightmares. Can I get an old joy? The EU is out here crafting new digital decrees and they're going for a high score. And the US isn't far behind with their privacy tango. It's like a dance-off where the only move is paperwork. Advertisers are threading the needle between data-driven genius and privacy pandemonium. Will they land a perfect 10 or get tangled in the red tape ribbon? Then we'll waltz over to, waltz over to the made-for-advertising sites, the digital equivalent of a mirage in the marketing desert. It's where clicks and impressions go to feel good about themselves, but the conversion rate is still nursing its one-drink minimum at the bar. Is there treasure buried in these pixel dunes? Or are we just digging in the sandbox hoping to strike oil? And we can't forget about the programmatic problems where ad dollars sometimes disappear faster than my dignity at a karaoke bar. We're spending billions in the digital ad casino, but the house always wins, right? We'll be slicing through the fog of ad speak and jargon to find out where the money is hiding. Spoiler alert, it's not under the E and click here. So keep your ad blockers off, folks. This is the only show where pop-ups are part of the experience. Let's dive into a world where cookies are more than a snack and where every click could be a story. But are you know? Just another click. Let the games begin. Deserve to win when it matters most. Facing multi-billion dollar bet the company litigation? No problem. That's why we're here. Troutman Amin, LLP is a true legal powerhouse. Great panel here uh, today. Um, at the helm of our panel, we have Mike Zanis. He's the CEO of Trustworthy Accountability Group and the co-founder of the Brand Safety Institute. He is uh, an expert in seamlessly blending technology with policy and adept at forging alliances across the intricate political landscape. And we have Richard Kahn, the digital marketing virtuoso, who I've known for about 30 years. He is the co-founder and CEO of Ezinga and a Neuro.io uh, fraud protection firm. We also have uh, Jared Siegel, or Siegel, the brains behind Attitude, an ad ops juggernaut that has evolved from a solo constituency or consultancy to an industry powerhouse catering to 20 publishers. In the mix, we also have Zach Moore, the Senior Vice President of Digital Media Operations, Michael Bishop, the co-founder and CTO of Open Ads. We're starting with uh, regulatory nightmares. Will your latest digital decorum dance affect the ad jamboree? With the EU tightening its grip on online platforms, how will advertisers pirouette around the new rules without stepping into any digital toes? Happy go. Um... I think it's a challenging landscape, but it's not an impossible one. Um, I think way too often compliance and digital has just become a kind of a checkbox. Um, just generally, I think we need to switch to it, including more compliance from the start and integrating into the fabric of a lot of digital products versus backing into it in a reactive way. Is the uh, GDPR, is that, a, is that going to kill the industry, as some people think, or is this actually an opportunity? 
Anyway. Uh, back in the day, I, I was the one explaining, G, explaining GDPR to Oracle lawyers, so I, I would say my take is GDPR is a great idea, but rolled out as an unmitigated technical disaster, and not really thinking about the second-order effects, where what we get is cookie consent pop-ups that people basically ignore. Like, it, it, it's well-intentioned, just it doesn't actually solve what it's intended to solve, out, and it's very difficult to actually enforce outside of the small handful of high-profile cases, the Facebooks, Googles, Amazons, essentially. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in here, too. I think uh, as a long-time uh, U.S.-based federal lobbyist and policy person, this is not a surprise that good intentioned regulators put something in place where they don't understand the technical underpinnings of the very industry and supply chain that they're trying to, to impact. 10, 12 years ago, when I was at the IEB running public policy for them, we were having these same discussions. We were talking about GDPR before it was even GDPR. Uh, you may remember the discussions around do not track uh, and some of the work there at W3C. The argument we always made was that this could potentially help consumer privacy, but what the ultimate result will be in the marketplace is going to be less competition, more walled gardens. And in the end, regulation almost always helps the largest incumbent companies. They, they can help uh, drive and architect the regulations to, the, to, to work best for them. They have the resources to come into compliance and to invest in innovation to, to also either be compliant or to get around the, the regulations themselves. And I think that's what we're seeing. All of all of this, uh, whether it's GDPR in Europe, and then once you had the European law, it was only a matter of time before it, it was exported to the U.S. and California. And now we're seeing the, the proliferation of state laws in this space. And, and so that's always going to help the big walled gardens. It's going to hurt the smaller folks who are trying to come in and, and compete. Uh, it, it can create some innovation. Little pockets, I think, but at the end of the day, uh, this is this is really creating oligopolies, and and I think that that is a truly unintended purpose or result of, of European regulation. But it's not a surprise outcome for us. You mentioned um, the monopolies, uh, or duopolies, or whatever you call it, uh, with Google and Facebook. Do you think that they, they they had to know this was going to happen? Do you think that they were behind this at all? Behind it? No, I think at a, at a high level, I think that they they ultimately once GDPR passed in in Europe, I think that they knew they had to shift towards a long term compliance goal. And then and then you know, do I think that they wanted these regulations? No. But are they are they then going to leverage them to the best of their 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 uh, business purposes? Absolutely. Uh, Michael mentioned privacy sandbox. We, we we can have a long discussion about that. Under the guise of privacy, uh, you you have you have to start creating these different types of environments and deprecating third party cookies and the like. So they've had a long time to be able to oh, uh, to get to this result. Sorry, you went out for a second. Hopefully, we'll yeah. get you as a note. Whatever we it, it reports. So if we don't see it, we'll upload the. Uh, so if you aren't Google and Facebook, how are you going to adapt to these regulations? Uh, for us, we're kind of taking a, an extreme position, right? So we are not data processors. We are not the owners of the website, uh, but we are obviously working with publishers that are very confused by all the different laws that are out there and the, and the regulations that uh, they require. So for us, we're basically saying, hey, we won't even let you as a website monetize your site unless you have a CMP. We can't identify that there's a, a string on the page. We're not allowing anything to process as it relates to anything ad serving, right? Whether it's calling GAM, calling prebit, user ID modules, whatever it may be. Um, I think that the biggest like hurdle that we see, because again, we're we're kind of like this weird nebulous position where we're in the middle, is that a lot of the CMP vendors who are coming about to help publishers and companies deal with these regulations 
are not abiding by the regulations themselves and don't really understand it. So the number of conversations that I've had over the last year where I'm teaching a CNP vendor what they're supposed to do to abide by GDPR, response is incorrect uh, for reason A or B, is is kind of alarming. Um, we've we've contemplated just building it out ourselves and just trying it, taking a stab at it as well. Uh, that's a whole other legal mess that we don't really want to get into. But uh, that's, to me, the biggest issue of what's going on right now is like, we found out that if it is properly set up and you're getting the right signals, you can actually improve monetization uh, in some of these cases. But 99% of the time, it is incorrect. <laughs> yeah, I think as a small vendor, you sort of got two options, right? Either you're going to be playing catch up forever and trying to play the same game as the, as the bigger, bigger entities with fewer resources, or you turn the chessboard around and play a different game. Um, for, for example, if we're talking about audience targeting, you can just say, no, we're taking a privacy-first standpoint. We don't, we're not collecting audience targeting, like in, entirely contextual-first, for example. And it's, it's one of the reasons that I think there's been a lot of buzz around contextual targeting technologies, whether from the legacy vendors or newer players in the space. What steps can advertisers take to ensure that their campaigns are actually effective in light of all these regulations? Well, I'll start with the compliance side of this versus the effectiveness of the ads. First and foremost, marketers have to understand that they have uh, direct liability under under most of these new legal regimes. And so that they have to lean in. And and whether that means they're, well, most likely it means they're going to need some third-party vendor par- partners um, and folks who have designed privacy first, right? Uh, uh, privacy by design. And, and so as Jared said, you have certain partners that are kind of just by design compliant, but that's not going to be the full marketplace. So they're going to have to find full tech stack solutions to try to tell a, a compliance story. And I say to tell a story because when you have dozens of state laws in this area, then all look sort of the same, but have differentiation, right? You have this patchwork of regulations in the U.S. that's developing. The reality is there are going to be uh, uh, counterpoints and contradictory requirements. You'll never get to 100% compliance but you can have a good positive story. So they need to start with that. And then they need to figure out how to optimize their actual ads. Do we think the big brands are going to actually play play well? Or are they going to come into some like regulatory tug of war and start lawsuits? Look, those, once, once they start getting sued, you know, we saw this with Sephora. Uh, once you see some actual uh, law enforcement actions, I think that they'll have to snap to, to attack you. Maybe a good dovetail beyond that is besides lawsuits, there's also brand perception pressure. Like you, you take the news article we just saw around the uh, woman who after chemotherapy got targeted for crema- cremation ads. Like that's not oh. traditionally considered a brand safety failure, but it's a catastrophic failure in terms of like brand, brand awareness and just public perception. So that, that's sort of an adjacent take on financial pressures parallel to like actual legal compliance. Because is brand safety the new uh, knight in shiny armor for advertisers? Is, are we, are we, is this basically where everyone's turning to brand safety now? Like, that this is the, the most important thing is brand safety? I'm sure Mike can talk about it. You know, you would think as co-founder of an organization called the Brand Safety Institute, my answer would be yes, of course, it's the, it's the white knight. But uh, I don't think it's new. And it certainly is, is not a, a, a savior in any way, shape or form. It's an issue that everyone has to be thinking about more now than, than ever. Um, but you know, the, the example of the, the, the retargeting faux pas with, with crematoriums is that's not new. That's been happening, right? I mean, a decade ago, it was that, you know, the supermarket knew that you were pregnant and started targeting, uh, you know, baby diapers to you. And, and, and that was, so these, we step into the same potholes constantly as an industry and we need to learn, uh, how to avoid the mistakes of the past. 
and try to start anticipating the brand safety mistakes of the future. Um, I think that marketers do care about uh, brand safety more now than ever, but they have a whole slew of corporate uh, priorities around ESG, you know, sustainability, equity, diversity, and inclusion that um, probably rank much higher on their list of, of day-to-day concerns. Brand safety is too often relegated to the crisis management. As brand, I have that faux pas, that focusing event in the public, and now I have to scramble. And not enough brands are kind of proactively protecting themselves from safety. Is the definition of brand safety changing in this environment? It continues to expand. And we did a we did a survey of the industry uh, four or five years ago at BSI, and, and we found, we asked marketers and agencies, intermediaries, and publishers, and your definition of brand safety depends on where you sit in the ecosystem. Uh, you can you can expect that brand safety, uh, if you're a, a DSP, SSP, is around negative ad adjacency, putting serving ads into uh, inappropriate content. What shocked me was that marketers think of brand safety from an ROI perspective. They think they, they include viewability as a brand safety issue. I, I did my ex-ante position was, no, that's a measurement standard. <laughs> um, so it, it depends on, uh, I think brand safety has become a bit of a catch-all uh, in the industry, unfortunately. Like I was actually double-checking the Brand Safety Institute website earlier, and I noticed in the glossary of terms, brand safety is not defined which I think is a fantastic example of exactly this, where sort of the original use case of it has sort of evolved and the the term has continued to to slurp up more and more aspects of uh, sort of the the aspect of brand storytelling. And conducting into MFA a little bit, one of the the directions I think it's going to continue to evolve is looking at advertising experiences holistically. If you have 57 ads on a page and each of those are being bid at the exact same price, as opposed to like two premium ads, like those are not... equivalent parallels. And, and that's something where we haven't really seen the market shift to adjust to that yet. But I could see that also falling under the brand safety umbrella of like contextual targeting, like placement quality, ad experience quality, whatever whatever the term we, we end up coming up with is for that. Do you think that Musk has changed this entire conversation? You put it on fire. <laughs> I mean, he, he comes from the, the, the belief that it doesn't matter uh, what like the 95% of the people think of you, that's just the 5% that get you. I mean, so how, how do you address that in brand safety that you know, it doesn't matter if 90% or 95% of people hate you. It's only those 5% that buy your product. I mean, what I've found is over the last year plus since the uh, Elon Musk took over Twitter X is that I have family members now who actually know what I do. They never <laughs> never thought about brand safety. <laughs> never thought about any of this, right? And, and now they say, what do you think about Elon Musk? Uh, early on, we published a, a piece about is, is Elon Musk brand safe? And the, the unique thing about this situation is that he is a cult of personality. Every one of his companies has always been run that way. And so he is the company. He is X. And so when he says something, whether he says it on X, in which case it's a negative potential negative adjacency on the on, for a marketer, or if he just says it on stage with, you know, in an interview with Sorkin, and he says, you know, go F yourself, advertisers. Well, his reputation and the things he says off the, the platform still impact the the relative brand safety of the platform. And that's unique, I think, even more so than than with Mark Zuckerberg and Instagram and Facebook or any other uh, any other big platform. So I think he's changed it in that way. He's raised the awareness level. And in some ways, he's made it about him and less about X, which is different. The issues are still the same. But it's at a different level, I think. It's almost equivalent so to the like political news sites where like you look at Breitbart.com advertising and that's sort of sort of the opposite of the Taylor Swift effect. Instead of a halo, you've got sort of a like gigantic cloud hanging over where advertisers don't want to touch it. And 
Twitter X is, is becoming a more, a more egregious example of that. Right. They, I mean, uh, Breitbart was targeted by sleeping giants, and um, I think that had a lot to do with it. But you know, I don't know if Breitbart would have had necessarily the negative perception without that target. I mean, I don't know if people really care you know, on a day-to-day basis where they're at show. I mean, has there been any surveys, Mike, about that, that consumers actually care? Uh, well, yeah, we've done a consumer survey uh, about this. We actually do an annual consumer survey uh, between BSI and TAG. Usually ask about 1,200 uh, consumers their their viewpoint. And the vast majority, I think it's something like 86% of consumers say then uh, when an ad appears next to offensive content, then it will uh, it will give them, a, the consumer, a negative perception of the brand. Now, what's more difficult and, and in, in many ways more valuable to try to measure is does it change their purchase behavior? That's the real question. We know we used to do privacy uh, surveys all the time, right? Hey, do you, do you care about your privacy? Yes. And then you ask them the next question, well, are you on a social media platform and do you give up your name and email address and all of these other things, your browsing history in order to use that? Are you happy with that trade-off? And the answer is yes. So behavior doesn't always match the stated viewpoint of consumers. How, how much is, tic- is this TikTok's fault? Have they been bringing uh, the focus onto compliance? I don't think you can blame TikTok, honestly. I think it's been a concern pre-TikTok. Like, I've got a question. How, how much is TikTok really a major source of brand dollars right now? Oh, it's huge. I mean, I pulled the figure, but TikTok is it's becoming one of the main social media sources for advertisers, especially that people are pulling back from X. Hmm. I mean, people are taking their budgets. They don't want to be on X anymore, for, as we mentioned, for the brand safety. That's and exactly... I'm getting, yeah, go ahead. That's exactly what we've seen. We've seen a lot of our advertisers move everything from X, and in some cases, Meta, to TikTok, and it's actually performing really, really well. Zach, what do you think about some of the, uh, for, your, for some of your, your customers, your clients, um, you know, TikTok's moving to longer length pieces of content. And some of the creators have been complaining that they're, they're now expected to produce at least 60 second or more clips versus, you know, the 15 second quick dance video. Is that, I assume that that is to get more attention? Uh, longer engagement, more ad impressions. Is that a positive that, that you've seen or a negative? Uh, I think it's probably a positive. I think interaction rates that I've seen on TikTok are strong so far. Um, where we're really leaning in with TikTok is new ad formats. Um, we've seen them really kind of increase the pace at which they're releasing new formats, um, which has been nice to see. If TikTok, which is primarily right, much younger audiences, less disposable income is performing <clears throat> so well, for brands and maybe better than other platforms, then like, why does any of this matter? Why does the, like, does that throw away the entire argument for MFA and brand safety in general? You can prove that like, hey, on these, these platforms that are probably not brand safe, there's no way TikTok, TikTok can be proved to be brand safe, is performing so well. I think marketers are willing to take the risk. If the performance is there, fine. I'm okay with maybe appearing next to some sketchy contents, but I think they'd be okay with it if the performance is there. Well, it's not peering next to like this problem with X. X, you could take a screenshot and show this is this ad is right next to this, you know, um, this person's comments about women or Nazis or whatever. But TikTok, you know, it will come after or before. And it's not necessarily related to that. So I think that's part of the issue, too. Um, moving on to AI, uh, as AI transforms advertising, will the impending regulations be a speed bump or roadblock for markers looking to ride the, reg- the uh, wave of innovation? Uh, starting with uh, Michael, since you're the AI guy, right? Yeah. So AI and advertising is, I, so the way people are talking about it right now is sort of the low hanging fruit, like creative optimization, like uh, DCO stuff, um, like improving operational efficiency for ad ops things like campaign insights, all of that. I think that's a little short sighted and sort of just the beginning of what we're starting to see. Like the way I would define it is 
sort of akin to the next big platform shift, where we're sort, we're sort of seeing the flashlight app era equivalent with Perplexity, with U.com, IaaS, Character AI, all these real-time generative platforms where the content is completely dynamic. And that's a big shift in terms of how content's being produced, consumed, and how ad tech then integrates with it. There's nothing static to scrape, there's nothing static to contextualize, and it, it really opens the door for for the first time in maybe 20 years, there's a search box that matters that's not Google. So, and this is one of the things that I'm really excited about is we get to play with incredibly powerful, like real-time contextual data that needs absolutely no audience targeting. Like actually designing ads in real time for what users are searching for to solve problems. And and it's one of it's been one of, one of the the bees in my bonnet for ages is ads mostly in the open web right now don't actually help users. They're not positive like in, in information exchange. And we actually have an opportunity to shift. That. So, where, where I, I, go ahead. I would say my take is compliance might be a roadblock for some, but embracing the new opportunities for what we can do is there's actually a huge greenfield to play in, totally unimpeded by any kind of compliance. What are some unique regulatory concerns with AI? Um, I think one of, one of the big things is I, I've seen this take from water cool chatter from top tier venture capitalists of, oh, like what happens if Pepsi pays for like biased weight training in like foundation AI, AI models? And I think that's just flat not going to happen because there's the looming hammer of the, the FTC and ad disclosure regulations. Like it, it's the sort of thing where I, I don't think anyone's going to take the, ri the risk to actually do that. Um, so for, from that perspective, I, I think we're still going to have to move forward with like clearly disclosing what is an ad and not sort of mixing up the content of like generative platforms with generative advertising. Still sort of keeping the two in their own lane, so to speak. I, I agree with that, Michael. I, I think that a uh, great opportunity to use AI as, as a tool in advertising and as I said about regulation, almost always helps. Uh, almost always helps large incumbents. There's an opportunity for government regulation to get this one right. Hopefully, unlike a lot of what they've done in the consumer privacy area, and you're going to see you, know, you already see them diving into uh, you know deep fakes, and especially around deep fakes within uh, political advertising, because they're they're thinking about the integrity of elections and democracy, which is the right view. Uh, as long as as long as they can confine it to these real harms and not kind of over overreach, which is usually what happens when you have unintended consequences. So um, I'm actually encouraged by the pace at which, at least in the U.S., then then the federal government has leaned in on this issue. Usually, they they are lagging behind by many many years. And instead, um, I think that uh, both on on Capitol Hill with some proposed uh, bills, but also with the uh, Biden administration putting out their set of guidelines, there they are very quick. I think that they were very quick to recognize the gravity of the technology and that they needed to to begin to understand it. They may still misstep, but I'm somewhat encouraged uh, by this particular process. Hey, Michael, uh, question for you: How long do you think it'll be until we have a universal watermark for like AI generated content. I don't think that's going to happen at all. I, I, really? I think if you look at all the efforts right now in trying to watermark AI systems and trying to de detect it, so far, none of them work. There, there's that, and especially not at the reliability I think you would want for something like this. Like sort of the like rough rule of thumb when it comes to generative AI, as I would describe it, is if you need a system that has 99.999% reliability or uptime, like databases or something like that, generative AI is terrible. Like you, you are just never going to get 100% reliability. Like 95%, 98%, Awesome. Like, and like looking for, for those places where like you can leverage improvements to those operational efficiencies where 98% reliability is great, that's where you want to focus. And AI detection is I, I, not a 100% reliability system. I think it'll be the opposite. I think there'll be some sort of um, hash or something um, on files and graphics and photos that are real. So, so if, there, if, it, if, that, if that's needed, for example, if you go to a website, there'll be a hash that says this is a real photo of the president. And you can be able to use that. It'll use some sort of uh, public key encryption or something. And then you'll be able to you know, verify that this is a real photo that's taken with a real camera and it hasn't been changed. So that's actually um, already happened. There, there was a company in the, um, like AWS had a generative I mean, I AI accelerator. Right. 
uh, bunk.ai. Um, where that, that's basically what they're doing is taking cryptographic caching of like confirmed user-generated uh, photos, basically confirmed right. real rather than like detecting AI, like an AI fake. And it, I, I think it, a very like similar aspect is what we're going to see for a lot of systems. Where it's going to be less about detecting AI and more about building AI systems that ground in truth using like retrieval augmented gener generation for actual content, and then saying, okay, here this is a completely dynamic output, but here's the reference source that that we are pointing you to. All right, so let's move on to a little bit to about the. Uh... Hey, go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Before we move on. No, I, I was just going to say there's there's the the approach of the AI generators themselves, uh, watermarking or or marking when something is is real and not AI generated. There's also you know from our perspective at Tag, we're looking at the publishers out there and and think that there's a there's there's probably a use case here for especially in journalism to identify you know human created news versus AI generated and and you can work on both sides you know you can you can la label something as AI generated or label something as human generated but even then it's not binary right we know newsrooms are using are using AI to create the content of a lot of stories doesn't mean that they're not edited by a human is that AI generated or is that good quality uh, journalism eyes in, in, in the beholder. So it, it, there are no easy answers in that space. It also sounds like it's going to bring up a possibility of just fraud. Like, again, I'm in the fraud space, and I'm always looking for, you know, what fraudsters are thinking next. So if there's a benefit in doing that, they'll defraud those, those signatures. They'll make them look real when they're really not. So well, this is Rich, like, you have to Rich, you have to see this too. Just the the evolution of the the fraud vectors, the threat vectors, because of AI. I mean, social engineering AI can just gather all the information about an individual, and then they can have a, a multi-vector attack. I mean, now we're hearing of, of folks getting you get the email that says, you know, oh hey, you know, this is this is from your 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 son or daughter, and call me immediately. And then they have the voice generated. It's just made it more complex and and feel like it hits closer to home. And we know that fraud occurs by making somebody take an action. And what better way to make a consumer take an action to be defrauded than pulling at the heartstrings of family or something like that. So we're already seeing uh, the fraud area change. Um, <clears throat> distribution of malware is more sophisticated because of AI. We're seeing the nature of, of made-for-advertising, MFA sites, evolve because Content creation is essentially free now. And so you don't have to steal content, uh, which was a common way of identifying MFAs. Was, oh, this is not original content. Well, hell, with, it, with generative AI, you can, you can spin up new content for free continually. And so it's becoming more complex. And so AI, wonderful technology, can be used for good, can always be used for bad. And it can be used to detect bad as well. We find that AI is actually better at detecting AI if that makes sense, then then often human review. So the world is always getting more and more complex. I want to eventually I want to move into the uh, made for advertising sites, uh, the Adland mirages, as I like to call them. Um, these online agents that were markers in the siren son of eyeballs. Um, I think the first question is 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 how do we determine if this is just our savvy arbitrage or it's just shady fraud? I've got a hot take on this, and. I would say the entire internet is made for advertising. Like, it, it, I don't like the label because functionally, content right now is produced and optimized towards advertising metrics. So it, it, it's less like a question of like the rabbit hole of detecting and catching MFA, and it's more potentially we need to go back and rethink what the currency we're transacting on is. Like, viewable CPM is just flat broken as a metric because it's so gameable. 
Right. Isn't that the reason these, these sites exist? Because they have such great viewability? I mean, they, 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 I wrote down that they have a 77% viewability rate, according to a recent study. That should be great. Yeah, but to whom? Viewability is to whom? If you look at the viewability standard, it doesn't say to who is seeing those ads. It could be bot, malware, human platforms that are seeing these things. And so the viewability metric is not a great metric. I mean, it's part of one of the overall metrics you want to look at, but right. it's so beatable by fraudsters out in the marketplace that when we talk to our clients, we don't we don't have them rely on that data. There's so many other metrics that they need to be looking at, and that's one of them that, because it's so beatable, it's becoming less and less reliable. What's yeah. the criteria that we can use to differentiate between something that's actually a legitimate site and something that's just made to uh, push crap? Looking at the audience hitting the site. I think okay. it's like a, uh, a loaded statement. So a lot of the, I have a real hot take on this as someone that got his career started in, in, in an arbitrage company, right? Is uh, there's a really big difference between websites that have a lot of ads and websites that don't have real traffic, right? And a lot of the quote unquote MFA sites are actually companies that invest millions and millions of dollars a year in terms of content creation and things like that. But the only way that they can keep their uh, business profitable, right? is through traffic acquisition. There's a lot of very, very, very premium companies and publishers in our space, uh, some of the biggest names in our space, who are large majority purchase traffic, right? Um, and we don't really look at those companies as MFA businesses because they're a big brand. A website that's driving all of its traffic through like pop-unders and things like that, right? An IVT, like not real human traffic, makes sense. Yeah, that's garbage, right? But companies that are driving a lot of traffic to social platforms, whether it be Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or whatever, right? They have to pay for a lot of that traffic. It's the only way they can sustain their business. And the only way they, they, they can be profitable is to serve a lot of ads, right? Um, so I think there's like a lot of mislabeling, a lot of misinformation. And there's a, there's a, a very, there should be a very big distinction between a website that is not real traffic and a website that just has a lot of ads. So at TAG, we've, we've got a transparency utility called TAG Trustnet. We, we were the data uh, provider and uh, analyzer for the ANA's uh, programmatic transparency report that came out last November, I guess, the first look report that came out of CAN last year. So we've been, we were able to overlay uh, some MFA lists of domains uh, along with all KPIs, viewability, IBT, brand safety, CPMs, true CPM, which is a different term because CPMs is a broken uh, measurement. And what we found was that there was 500 domains then collected 98% of the ad spend that went to MFAs. So this is this is a manageable issue. Those domains are going to migrate and change over time, especially because of the ability of AI to generate new content quickly. Um, but as an industry, we're, we are already overcomplicating this issue. This is what we do as an industry, right? Everybody gets together and says, I have, I have a different viewpoint. And uh, I can't remember if it was Michael or Zach who said, you know, for calling it made for advertising. Of course, every website, every app is made for advertising. So there's a, you know, is it made for advertising? There's a discussion, should it be called made for arbitrage? We're stuck with the term. Uh, so you know, Chris Kane at Jounce Media will, will, will tell you that he doesn't love the term made for advertising, even though I think he's credited with creating it. We're stuck with it. There's a cross-industry working group to define it. Um, we won't come up with a single definition. And, providers will all have their own methodologies. And so some of them look at auction, at the number of auctions and your win rate, because again, Jared said, you have to, you have to buy a lot of traffic, but you have to buy it at really low CPMs in order to make any money on an MFA site. So you lose a lot of auctions. You enter a lot and you lose a lot. That's one 
that's one indicator of MFA. Ad density is another indicator. Um, somebody said user, I think Rich said, what users and, and what's the user experience? We now see MFAs uh, being list identified in the mobile app space. And uh, if you look now at, uh, at the uh, Pixelate MFA methodology, they look at apps and some of the, the indicators they look for are like user review. Is it a crappy user experience? Well, that, that may be an MFA. Is it a really, is it a really, really new or a really, really old app in the app store? So there's a lot of different indicators, none of which should, should govern and, and be the decider on whether a site is MFA. But what we found again was that it was a finite number of domains. And the reason they were getting money is because they had high viewability rates, even higher than the number you, you referenced at the beginning. I mean, we were talking about 85, 90% viewability, had extremely low fraud rates, and were incredibly brand safe. So they weren't getting flagged for any of that. They also tend to not violate the ad density uh, guidelines that the Coalition for Better Ads puts out. These are smart businesses. They know the industry standards. They work to them because they want to hide and, and not be detected, and they're really good at it. And so as an industry, we just need to be very vigilant. I, you know, I think... Go ahead, Jerry. I was going to say, I have sort of two questions on that. The first thing, which is more of a statement than a question, but I find it really interesting. There's a, t I've discovered over the last, I don't know, a few months, a ton of publishers that have no content, right? There's tons and tons of sites that are popping up now that are just pure search ads, pure search ads, right? You, you get driven to this page and it's just hundred straight ads, not display ads, right? So these are like Google SERP or whatever it may be. And we're kind of not paying attention to any of those guys. And to me, that that is literally, you can't, define made for advertising anymore because the site only exists as ads. Uh, so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that, Mike. But the second question, uh, that's your point, is like, so these sites that have decent ad density, okay, their viewability of 90% makes no sense. Like no normal site really has that. Forget about that for a second. What's the problem? Yeah, it, you know, <laughs> the ANA study essentially assigned a $0 value to MFA inventory. That may or may not be true. Uh, I mean, they, this is not a new issue. MFAs have been around for a decade. And, and so somebody's been buying them because they perform. And whether that's because a marketer wants it and their chief procurement officer has set requirements that, you know what, we, we only spend $2.50 CPM and any, and then we have our, our metrics. You can't spend $2.60 CPM because that's not what we do, even if it's higher quality or because an agency wants to hit certain benchmarks. So that they can go back to the client and, and, and keep getting paid or whether because people had their head in the sand. I don't have that answer for you, Jared, but um, there's there. Some people may want to be on those sites. Um, some people, some marketers don't care where their ads show up. Right. Um, and that's their decision. I think transparency is the key transparency that you can identify, hey, here's a list of sites that look and feel like MFA. Who as a marketer decide what you what value you place in them? You decide, and right, and, and up until recently, last three or four months, <clears throat> that wasn't the case. You know, I don't think marketers generally had transparency and knowledge of this issue. Even now, you know, it was the central finding of the ANA report last June, and a majority of marketers surveyed by the ANA uh, at the end of last year still had not even heard of the term MFA. So, go figure. I, I, I think to make a point, for, first of all, sorry. Um, regarding about what an MFA site is, you know, to quote uh, Justice Potter Stewart when he was talking about porn and obscenity, he said, uh, when I see it, I know it. Um, I think for a lot of us, you, you, we just know this is an MFA site. You see the site, there's no real content, there's, there's 5,000 banners, 
and the only people who are going there are the ones that are being pushed there from click from cheap click ads. Um, the second part is what is the responsibility for people like Taboola and Outbrain and all these like web content and all these companies that are basically pushing the junk sites on mainstream sites like Fox News, MSNBC. I mean, it's the same issue that they, we had what 10, 15 years ago with vlogs. You know, that the people behind that were Taboola, Outbrain, and Rev Content. Well, and ironically, uh, the vast majority you don't you won't get flagged as anything just because you have Taboola or Outbrain ads on your, on your website. No, I mean, they're driving, they're driving the traffic. Like you can buy a hundred, hundred percent that 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 occurs, and and so there's there's just you start with the fundamental question. Some people will say, of course, just having native ads on your site make you an MFA, and then there, but that's not generally the standard. Um, and and then the question is, then you ask, what's their responsibility? I mean, I, I think like any network, you have a responsibility to vet your your publisher partner. So what's the evolution? What's what's the next step of, M of MFA sites besides obviously um, AI? Are we going to um, see video? Do you think we're going to see video coming up? Like, I mean, I, that's yeah, probably the AI thing too. You know? Yeah, of course, of course. You know, uh, uh, folks will always gain the system. That was Rich's point, that in, and he's one hundred percent right. They will always gain the system, uh, which is why you can't come out with a single definition. Um, it is a little well, bit if you if you if you you know it when you see it. So it's going to continue to to proliferate. It's going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately. Because we're all, we're having a proliferation now of MFA methodologies for flagging them, and and so there's that's going to drive uh, a lack of true understanding on the buy side and consistency. I was on a call uh, a couple of weeks ago with the cross industry working group, and somebody brought up a uh, a, a, a local you know mid mid city size newspaper. I'm not going to give the name, and it's a legitimate news out independent news outlet, and. We had a really robust discussion about whether it was MFA, and some people said, "Well, they've got they've got native advertising on there, and it doesn't look like a good consumer experience." That's MFA to me. Another uh, another person said, "Well, I don't think they have uh, a lot of arbitrage uh, traffic. Uh, yes, they have a lot of ads. I don't necessarily like all of the ads or this takeover ad. So it's going to get more complicated, um, and we're going to we're, we're going to do ourselves a disservice because there's going to be 50 different MFA lists out there and methodologies." What I hope we can do is educate the marketplace, especially buyers, which is the the overlap in monetized MFAs. Again, in the ANA study, it was just 500 domains. We 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 can focus on a problem of that scale, and and whether it, you know it, it's not a million domains and apps that are actually getting money. There may be a million MFA sites. The vast majority of them do not get monetized. Would you say that the majority of MFA sites are part of some fraud network? Why are people afraid to actually call a spade a spade? I've noticed this in almost every article that people don't want to say that the majority of these sites are just probably fraud. Well, you have to define fraud. Uh, the way Rich and I define fraud, they're not fraud. It's it's mostly humans. The rate yeah, of in the sense that, in the sense, I apologize, a sense that yeah. media buyers don't want to buy on it, and these and these companies are time and time again changing their domains so they can enter the the ecosystem over and over again. Yeah. Well, then Jared's going to raise the question of: Is do they not actually not want to be there? Because for a decade they have bought this inventory, so we're back to a little bit of the chicken and the egg, and and it's difficult. Yeah, Mike, I, I think you referenced that that jounce, that jounce study that uh, like twenty one percent of all programmatic impressions run on MFA sites, and that's appalling to me. I mean, that just seems like negligence. Yeah, yeah, and fifteen percent of all programmatic ads spend goes to those MFA sites, but again, ninety eight percent of that went to five hundred domains. So, like the people who are really damn good at at being kind of reputable and 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 not complete fraudsters make a lot of money. 
Mine's you know, actually try something new this week. Um, you know, I don't know if anyone, how many people here know who David Letterman is, but um, I think most of us are that age. <laughs> and do the top 10 list that dives into the quirkiest corners of our world. And so I want to do, you guys can respond, add comments. I want to try this each week. I want to do the top 10 reasons why people still accept fraud in programmatic advertising. And this may fail. This may be a bomb. But please laugh at me anyways, or laugh with me, sorry. Um, number 10, because hope springs eternal that your ad dollars won't vanish into the digital void. Number nine, advertisers secretly prefer the undemanding companionship of bots. Number eight, embracing the nature of programmatic as a status symbol because who doesn't love a good mystery? Number seven, spending someone else's money on dubious digital ads carries the thrill of risk without the personal loss. Number six, there's safety in numbers, especially when everyone agrees to ignore the glaring inefficiencies of programmatic fraud. Number five, <laughs> navigating programmatic advertising offers the unpredictable thrill of a high-stakes gamble with each campaign roll of a dice. Number four, because believing in the benevolence of middlemen is a, in murky digital supply chain is easier than questioning their intention. Number three, the allure of vast digital landscapes fools advertisers into thinking more exposure even if fraudulent, is always better. Number two, faith in the mystical power of algorithms to transform digital dross into marketing gold persists against all odds. And the number one reason that we still accept fraud and programmatic, admitting defeat is an option when we spend so much money. Accurate. So moving on to programmatic, <laughs> my notes. Sorry, my notes are backwards. Moving on to programmatic, who wants to start while I find my notes? Oh, here they are. <laughs> It says that $2 billion disappears on programmatic each year. Let's just ask why that is, Rich. Why, why, 20, billion. 20, 20 billion. 20 billion. 20 billion. With a more, big, I'm going to say more than that. This is where I know of. That's 20 billion that we know of. Let's put it so this way. $88 billion, according to the, 80, to the ANA, is not yielding the attended results. So I'd say, yes, between 20 and $88 billion. Every test I've done for a client when it comes to sophisticated levels of invalid traffic have proven that programmatic channels average... 50% fraud. And I don't know the actual number of frauds uh, of dollars spent on programmatic right now. I know lion's share of the internet digital marketing uh, budgets, but I personally think it just, it comes down to not knowing. A lot of people that are buying in programmatic space feel comfortable because when they go to a DSP, you know, they'll all tell them that they have some type of fraud detection in place. They, they all use a pre-bid solution and pre-bid will catch your basic obvious types of fraud because they're, they're looking at some basic data points and they've got 20 milliseconds to respond and it's, it's just not enough data. When you look at where the ad actually lands, if you wrap that ad using an SIBT filter, ideally tag certified solution, um, you'll, uh, whatchamacallit, you'll actually catch a significant amount of fraud across all the DSPs that are out in the marketplace. And I think most customers that are spending money, most brands spending money on the programmatic space don't do that level of, of um, scanning. And they're not aware of the amount of fraud that's coming through it. Most people know that if they, they take a budget that they're spending on search and social and they move a percentage out over to programmatic, they can see a significant drop in performance back in numbers, whatever their, their true performance metrics are. And I just, I happen to feel that most people just don't realize that a pre-bid solution uh, or a GIBT solution is definitely significantly less effective than an SIBT solution. And most people, when I talk to them, don't know the difference between those two. Can, can you tell the audience what those are? For those GIBT is a general invalid traffic filter. Uh, so a pre-bid solution in most of these systems are using IP address, user agent, maybe device ID. It's like two or three data points for the most part that they're using to generally identify fraud. Where if you're using an SIBT filter, which is sophisticated invalid traffic filter, you're collecting usually hundreds of data points around that user and being able to use a lot more data to identify a lot more fraud. So the fraudsters in the marketplace understand this point very well. So they know 
the types of IP addresses and user agents not to use to get past that system. And most of those systems will catch one to three percent fraud. Meanwhile, when you actually have the ad showed up, shown up, and a visitor interacts with that ad, you'll be catching, like I said, on average, about fifty percent of that traffic is just flat out bots, malware, human fraud farms. You know, our definition of fraud. Richard, I gotta uh, I would, argue that uh, when programmatic performs, it performs really well, and we've seen more instances of upper funnel programmatic really building on conversions for search and social. It really assists search and social when you do it right. When it's done right, that's the yeah. key. So that's why it's such a high channel because when it's done right, um, it could be a very, very effective mechanism for increasing, you know, like if you're using it for retargeting, if you're doing things the right way, that's going to definitely yield that. But a lot of people that we come across aren't doing it the right way. And that's where that fraud gets involved. And that's where the performance issues come into play. So again, I think it just comes down to not knowing because when I talk to people and I start talking GIVT, SIVT, they're lost. Like they just have no idea what it's about, what's the differences. They just say, hey, my DSP is using a fraud solution, so I'm protected. And they don't understand that they're, they may or may not be protected the right way. We've also talked a lot this, about. Um, go ahead, Michael. We, we talked a lot about muddying definitions, muddying definitions and like not being entirely clear on what things are. And I think a huge part of missing spend, whether it's fraud, viewability, whatever your metric is, comes down to, for example, like a DSP calling something a viewable impression and an SSP calling something a viewable impression are completely different things. That can be 25% discrepant, and they are both still technically correct because they're measuring with different methodologies at like different technical points on the page. And you extrapolate that out to every other aspect of an incredibly complicated stack. And that's where the 20 to 80 some billion is largely going. How much Michael, we, have a we have a definition for viewability, but we don't have a different implementation. Definition, we, so we don't have a, not good a, the same implementation. Our, our definition is not good enough. So I agree. Well, this, yeah. is gonna, this is going to get into the technical weeds. But like, you, you look at an SSP measuring an ad and a DSP measuring an ad, and th th those measurement tags are on different sides of a cross-domain iframe. They are literally loading at, at a later part on the page for the DSP. So when it starts measuring viewabilities later, like realistically, if you want a truly accurate accounting of this, you need to be, be accounting for the different uh, parts of the ad lifecycle and where it's being measured at, and, and at supply-side versus demand-side viewability just being flat-out different metrics, and no one agrees on this. Like I pointed this out years ago, and the answer was largely to brush it off and not talk about it, because it makes for a very uncomfortable conversation with measurement clients. I don't care how That's why you need implementation are. guidelines, right? You've got a definition. Whether it's good enough or not, but if it if it doesn't have consistent implementation, you you get those huge deltas, right? You get the variances. That's it's 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 wild. And everybody just goes, I, "Hey, I buy viewable." Well, based yeah. on from who said it was viewable. So, Same thing with 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 IVT with, with that Rich is making. You know, it's like, oh, I, I used a vendor and it was GIVT, which is largely ineffective at this point. What about advertiser problem? We've been talking about everything from the perspective of the publisher, like the website is doing something wrong. The amount of time that I spend tracking down fraudulent advertisers is tremendous and spent a lot of time doing this, right? And so we have partnerships with certain companies that try to help us block that kind of stuff. But I'm talking about either ads layering on top of other ads, breaking out of the iframe and the heck they want, SSPs duplicating requests that you can see in the console. Suddenly one request is 10 requests, is 50 requests, right? Things like that. Uh, I feel like a lot of, we're, we're so focused on the publisher side traffic fraud we're completely ignoring the fact that there's an insane amount of fraud happening on the advertiser side right now uh and it's screwing over a lot of publishers how are, how are they they're using the technology to commit the fraud you're saying like they're i mean you, you mentioned are people still loading ads into iframes to try to arbitrage the ads no so like the concept of hey i've got a 300 by 250 here this advertiser wins they bust out of the iframe that they're in and suddenly now they're laying on ads outside of your own auction on top of your oh wow they load like 500 ads in a one-by-one one pixel. It was like Still basically similar. The ad right. is now viewed. The ad is viewable now, right? Viewable. But uh, it's the same concept. It's also the same concept of like, there's a lot of SSPs out there. 
right? A lot of SSPs <laughs> out there. And you can go in the request and be like, hey, I only called them one time, but I see them responding to five different auction responses. How the heck did that happen? The they... That's something where we have a standard for that. Like SafeFrame solves that. We, we have implementation guides for this. And part of it just comes down to education and making sure that advertisers and publishers out there are really aware of what they need to be doing and why. SafeFrame's publisher are... adoption of publisher adoption of IB Tech Lab standards is abysmal. That's a big uh, problem. That's because a lot of SSPs, especially on the private side, do not play nicely with SafeFrames. Right. So if you're a publisher and you need to have native style ad units and things like that, right? And we turn on safe frames within GAM, boom, there goes the large majority of my so This actually relates right. to uh, the, the earlier topic on compliance because this is something that that uh, privacy sandbox is actually going to have an incredibly de deleterious effect on that people are not talking about sufficiently. Fence frames kill post message as an API. And that's essentially how, how safe frame or any equivalent privacy technology works is, is off a of post message. So th this is part of, I, I think, both the, why both the IB Tech Lab and the, the CMA have been pushing back on it is there's a lot of these technical aspects of it that we haven't even really gotten into the weeds of the, the second order effects of yet. So I want to ask a question to everyone, and maybe this is probably a difficult question, but how much is this that there are too many partners in the ecosystem, meaning that the trade desk, for example, Xander, all these companies, are they, they, they probably have 90, 95% of all the inventory. Is this myth of the long tail that all these other networks that pop up, is that just a myth and these impressions don't really exist? Or is it just, I mean, is it part, I guess part of the uh, pursuit of the low CPM? You know, people, we're looking for the low CPM, so we're not going to the trade desk. We're going to this new network we never heard of, which is basically just selling the trade desk inventory in a different way. Is unique so supply a myth? Are, are there any more new supplies? I think they're fabricated supplies. That's how they're getting right, like the, CPMs. Right. Well, I think I think of the uh, example of last year, uh, or the report where they were running um, video ads on toasters, and of course the toasters didn't even have a string to run the ads, but the IP address was showing that they were running the video ads. It's, 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 again, is there any more inventory? Is this just that is the prop, main problem here is the pursuit of low CPM eyeballs and reach? Yeah, I think CTV could be new inventory. By the way, another platform just completely riddled with fraud and no way to measure pretty much anything there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if anyone trusts a new ad network, like if someone comes to you and say, I have this new ad network, and I'd like you to run our ads, uh, Jared, and one of your publishers, you probably just roll your eyes and go, that there's no room I, for it. So, right? so, sometimes they'll reach out to us. We're mostly a tech vendor. So most of the time they'll reach out to the publisher. The publisher will forward it to me. 95% of the time, if I haven't heard of it, I just say it's fraud. There's no right. way that, that that company could even exist because they don't have they don't have a direct sales team. This company of four people in the middle of nowhere does not have a direct sales team selling tons of new demand and things like that. They just have ads.txt of... 400 other SSPs that they're just reselling and reselling and reselling. Mike, on your end, is there any studies that illustrate the benefits of focusing on quality over quantity? Yeah, I think if you really dig into the ANA transparency report, you start to see some of the underlying causes of this. You, you've got competing interests by marketers, right? They, they want to reach audience. They want a targeted audience. They want to be able to frequency cap. They want to buy diverse owned media as, as again, a lot of these corporate goal, ESG goals. They want to work with partners that maybe have higher either privacy compliance scores or sustainability scores. So they start with this, this, this vast, just, I need lots of domains out there. We found the average number, uh, the average campaign ran on 44,000 domains. Why? It's because you wanted to achieve all of these goals at the outset, but then you didn't put in place any of the enough of the controls to measure for brand safety, human, viewable, and and just generally quality. And so you've created this problem. And then most most uh, campaigns are going to run with a dozen or more SSPs. Mm -hmm. And ask yourself, does that make sense? Do I need to be on forty four thousand domains for a campaign? Do I need to work through a dozen or more SSPs? I mean, we're starting to see this consolidation in the supply chain, right? The, 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 it's starting to narrow. 
that's a good thing for marketers. So you like to think that the cream is going to rise to the top a little bit as folks get uh, educated on this. Um, we, you know, and, and you hear these myths. I, in the last year, I hear people say, well, this is why we moved to private marketplaces is because of fraud and quality. No difference, virtually no difference in the number of MFAs that show up in PMPs versus open programmatic. Virtually no difference in, in valid traffic, fraud rates, viewability rates. You know, you know, the one variable was CPM. PMPs are a lot more expensive. Are you have to ask yourself, are you actually getting what you're paying for? And, and that's a real challenge. And so to me, having a couple of really marketers have to be smarter and work with fewer partners and ask yourself things uh, like how many downstream partners do I need? How many domains are, are, is the right number? Can I shrink that? Do I have my, do I have my uh, either tag or MRC accredited fraud vendor, measurement vendor? Am I working with them on a consistent basis? So you can get, you, you can get programmatic to perform if you have the right guardrails in place. Well, how much do agencies need to do to be advocates for their clients? Is that part of the problem? And do they need to be educated? Always need to be engaged and educated. I've uh, been talking to a lot of marketers now. We've been doing debriefs with marketers about the the, the, bench, the programmatic study and benchmarking them. And they said, well, I, I went and talked to my agency after the report came out. And they assured me, we're good. We're not running on MFAs. And, my and, and they're wrong. Said, they're probably wrong. <laughs> well, well, no, what they've all done is they all have gone out and bought an MFA list and said, done, done and dust, we're good. Well, those lists need to be kept updated and constantly. Um, but again, having a list is the right way to stop yourself from running on MFAs. That's where, that's, that might be the only use case where an exclusion list is appropriate and effective. Otherwise, you should only be using inclusion lists. You should start with that. But my question back to the to the marketer is: Go ask your agency what's their what's been their policy for MFAs over the last five years. If they haven't had a policy in place over the last five years to protect you, then how much money did you spend on MFAs prior to June of of twenty? All right. Before we go, I'd like to ask everybody: um, If you could send a text message to yourself in the past, when you started in this industry, what would you tell yourself? Let's start with Zach. Ooh, um, get more sleep. I think that's probably my my top one. Oh, I would say. Deprecate Internet Explorer support sooner. Honestly, the, dealing with the old IE versions is the single worst part of, the, of this career. Is Netscape even around? Uh, some very, very small percentage of traffic, probably. Oh, I didn't even know if Netscape still exists. Jared, what would you tell yourself? That to uh, start my company earlier, quit my job, do it four years. Uh, Good for you, yeah. Be an more earlier. And that's all, folks. Please consider sponsoring Adotat to keep independent and really witty tech journalism alive. We can't run this on good feelings and rainbows. 